There was a common criticism that he didn't really understand the psychology of women. One of his critics, it may have been Edmund Wilson, uh, reviewed either a version of this book where it was published anonymously or a manuscript where Lewis's name did not appear and said, this book, Till We Have Faces, must have been written by a woman because the main character is a woman and no man could possibly understand the inside of a woman's soul as well as this author does. And then it turned out that it was C.S. Lewis, whom he had previously accused of male chauvinism. The book is written from the viewpoint of and in the voice of its protagonist, who is a woman, in fact, an ugly woman. He calls it a myth retold. This is a, an interpretation and a retelling and, frankly, a, a kind of Christian allegorizing of a, a pagan myth of Psyche and Eros. Now, the Greeks very often made into gods all sorts of forces and all sorts of things, and psyche is the word for soul. And some of the Greeks thought that the human soul was something like a god. And many of the Greeks thought that love was a god. It came into them from without. It wasn't just a human emotion. It was a force, a divine force that swept you off your feet. We still unconsciously preserve that in Hollywood cliches like, it's bigger than both of us. So the myth in ancient Greek thought uh, had two main characters, Psyche, who was the woman, and Eros, who was the divine man. Now, like Tolkien, Lewis is a Christian but writes a book about pagan times. The Lord of the Rings is a Christian book, but it's not about a Christian era. But somebody as deeply Christian as Lewis or Tolkien uh, is going to have those Christian roots in him come up and determine the shape and meaning of the whole tree. So I will give you right away the key to interpreting this book. This is something that, frankly, I did not understand until after I had read it three or four times. <clears throat> the book is not obscure. It's a delightful read, but it has so many levels and so many layers that you have to read it a half a dozen times. Not to understand it, but to get everything that there is to understand out of it. And I suddenly realized, to my chagrin, that I had missed the main point of the whole book the first three times I read it. It's a story about Oriuel, who is not in the old Greek myth. Her beautiful sister is named Psyche, and Psyche has to be sacrificed to a god. And the god has various names. And Lewis tells you that this is the Psyche and Eros story retold, so you know that the god is Eros or Cupid or the god of love. Well, the god is really Christ. Once you see that, the whole story flops on its head. I think I should first tell you something about the plot. There are six main characters. Oriuel, her beautiful sister Psyche, who is also intelligent and innocent and pious, and her beautiful sister Redival, who is shallow and worldly and foolish. So there's three sisters. Their father is the king of Glom, which is an ancient Greek kingdom, a mythical kingdom, somewhere between the time of Socrates and the time of Christ. Near, but not too near to Athens. So they know about Greek philosophy, but they're a barbarian kingdom. The king's main advisor is a man simply called the priest, 
who is a wise old pagan who worships many gods and knows their power but doesn't understand them. The king's favorite servant, who is a good friend of Oriol and Psyche, is a philosopher called the Fox. He's a Greek, a disciple of either Socrates or the Stoics, who was captured in battle as a slave, and now he uh, is the tutor of these beautiful girls. And he is a wise and wonderful old man, but he is strictly rational. He's very much like C.S. Lewis's favorite tutor, Kirkpatrick. There are two other figures here. One of them, of course, is Christ, who is disguised as Eros, the Greek god of love. And then the other figure, who is much more mysterious, is a goddess called Ungut who is worshipped in the form of a black, ugly stone. Rather strange. Well, there's obviously contrasts here. The contrast between Psyche and Redival, both of whom are beautiful, but Redival has no beauty of soul. The contrast between the fox and the priest, between barbarian religion and Greek philosophy. The contrast between Eros and Ungit, the two gods, the god of... Beautiful love and ugly love. And there's a lot of contrast between Oriol and almost everybody. But Oriol, who is a very willful character, uh, loves her sister, Psyche. And the narrative thread, the psychological narrative thread, the drama, is mainly the jealousy uh, between Oriol and Psyche once Psyche is offered to be married to the god. So it's a contrast between unselfish love and selfish love. And Oriol's selfish love, her jealousy of Psyche, blinds her in, in many ways. Even though she's a, a sympathetic character, she's somebody we can identify with. She's not simply wicked or foolish, like Redival. But she's one of these fully developed literary characters who have, who have both good and evil in them mixed together in such a way that you can see yourself. She's not an idealized character. Psyche is. Psyche is almost too good to be true. And Redival is so foolish that you don't know much about her. You don't care about her. But Oriol is ourselves. It begins with a plague in Gloam, and the king, advised by his priest, says that this plague is so bad that the gods are angry and someone has to be sacrificed, and this time it's not just an animal but a human being. And it has to be the best of all human beings in the kingdom, because the god will not accept anything worse. And that means Psyche. So Psyche is taken up the holy mountain to be tied to a tree and sacrificed to the god. And she disappears. Uh, and Oriol is heartbroken and tries to, to deal with this. Has she been devoured by a wild beast? Has she been raped by a wild man? Has she been uh, spirited away by the gods and killed? Or has she been married to the god of, of infinite beauty, which is what she hopes? No one knows. Oriwell seeks out the bones of her sister and comes to the place where she was sacrificed, a tree, and finds her alive. And her beautiful sister Psyche invites Oriwell to, uh, to come and see the god's palace. She has been married to the god and now she is a queen. 
And Oriol simply does not believe this. She thinks Psyche is insane. So she goes to where the palace is and she sees nothing. And Psyche is astonished that she doesn't see the palace. Psyche does see it. The god had told Psyche that one thing is forbidden. Psyche must not look on his face. She can see the palace. Uh, she can be married to the god. She goes into the bridal chamber where the god is sleeping, but is not allowed to bring any light into the palace or the bridal chamber. And that's her test of faith. Oriuel does not let herself believe that there's anybody more important in Psyche's life than Oriuel, especially not some mysterious invisible god. She thinks Psyche is insane. So she tries to persuade Psyche to bring a light into the god's chamber to put the god to the test. Psyche refuses to do it. Uh, nothing that Oriol can do can shake Psyche's faith in her god. So Oriol blackmails Psyche. She says, I will kill both you and me if you don't do this. And she takes out a, a dagger and stabs herself in the arm. Blood comes out. See, this proves it. Now, the next stroke will be your heart and then mine. And Psyche, in order to preserve Oriol's life, agrees to do this. When she brings the light into the god's chamber, the god has to fulfill his earlier threat, his curse. He leaves poor Psyche forever. And she is doomed to walk the earth now uh, in, in agony because she has known divine joy, what it was, and now it's lost forever. And the weeping of Psyche breaks Oriol's heart. And Oriol simply cannot endure that pain. So she decides to veil her face. And from that day forth, no one ever has, never sees Oriol's face. And it gives her a tremendous power over people. People are afraid of her. But she does it when, once she becomes the queen, uh, when her father dies, her mother had died in her youth, once she becomes the queen, she veils her face in another way. She keeps very, very busy so that she is the best queen the land has ever known. Uh, and she disappears into her work, and she doesn't let her heart come out. She buries uh, her heart within her. <coughs> Gradually, her heart thaws. She realizes the harm that she's done to people. Uh, through a series of minor events, you see her grow, and... The story ends, I don't want to spoil the plot, I'll just say the story ends in a rather mystical way in a, a heavenly vision of reconciliation. The plot is not spectacular. It's not a page turner in the sense that you get vampires or comets in the ocean or uh, assassination plots, but if you're at all sensitive to the drama within, the drama of the human heart, it is exactly that, a page-turner. And it's written in a Greek sort of style, very sparse, very simple, very clear. Unlike his space trilogy, which is written in a more romantic style, a lot of words, this has a great economy of words. Much is suggested rather than said. It's a beautifully written book. Now, as a philosopher, I am most interested in what wisdom the book gives us. 
And I think there are five great questions that are addressed in this book, questions that were all of great concern to Lewis and are to us too. So I'll go through those five questions and just read some passages from the book with the purpose of not giving you a complete notion of the book. I've given you the plot outline in a very inadequate way. I'm not going to make that any better. But just little gleams of light about these questions. The only reason I gave you the plot outline was to put some sort of meaningful background into these passages. The first question is the relation between faith and reason. Between religion and philosophy. Between myth and logic. Between pre-Christian paganism and post-Christian rationalism. Both of which Lewis thinks are incomplete. He speaks here from his own deep experience. He wrote in his own autobiography before his conversion that the two hemispheres of his mind were totally separate. On the one hand, there was a, a beautiful sea full of many islands of myth and poetry. On the other side, there was a glib and shallow scientific rationalism. He said, everything that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Everything I thought literally real was grim, dull, and meaningless. And somehow those two hemispheres have to come together, but they certainly seem to conflict. The way they conflict in this book is through the two characters of the priest and the fox. The fox is the best that reason can do. And the priest is the best that ancient pagan religion can do. And they both lack something essential. Oriwell, who stands between them and is the pupil of both, uh, has to reconcile them in herself, just as Lewis did. And the key line here is the very simple question, why must holy places be dark places? Why must religion be mysterious? Especially, why did Psyche's husband God, if he is real and if he is good, forbid Psyche to bring light into the bridal chamber and see his face? Why would something good hide in the darkness? Now that seems to me is a very honest question. Bertrand Russell, who was not a very good man, but was a very smart man, uh, on his deathbed, in his 90s, had a preacher come to him. And the preacher said, look, Bertrand, I know you've been an atheist almost all your life, but, you know, you could be wrong. Don't you think you better hedge your bets a little bit, like Pascal's wager? What if you die tonight? doctor said it's possible. He actually did die a few days later. Uh, what if you died tonight and you found out there was a God? What would you say to him? Russell said, well, preacher, I guess that's an honest question. I think I should say to him something like this. Sir, if there's a God, I suppose he deserves a, a, a honorific title. Sir, evidently you do exist, and evidently my atheistic hypothesis is erroneous. Mm. Would you please answer me one little question? Why the hell didn't you give us more evidence? <laughs> now, that's Russell and very British. And, and very arrogant, but it's, but it's also a very good question. If you were God, and you were pure love, and your deepest intention was that everyone that you created shared your love and shared your joy, don't you think you could do a better job than God did in getting the message out? What about all these people that don't know the truth? Well, you've got the power of miracle. Why not just shine a light all over the world simultaneously? In fact, why not shine into everybody's brain? Why not give everybody a mystical experience? 
Why not let them see you face to face? They'd fall so in love with you that they'd fall down at your feet with a smile and be happy forever. Why all this mystery? Why all this pain? Why all the agony of the darkness if God is light? Why must holy places be dark places? That's a very honest question. Just to give you a sample of the style. At the beginning, when the priest is explaining why Psyche must die and be sacrificed to the god, he says, It is the great offering, and in the great offering the victim must be perfect. You can easily see the Christian symbolism here. For in the holy language, a man so offered is said to be the husband of the goddess Ungit. And a woman so offered is said to be the bride of Ungit's son. Now, watch out. Ungit is a dark god. So you're asking, well, wait a minute. Is this simply a, 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 a false pagan god? That's what you think at first. Because it can't be the true God. And yet, there's so much Christian symbolism, like the Son of God, Ungit. It turns out that Ungit is a mask for the true God. There's something true about Ungit. But it's not simply an allegory. It's not that Ungit is God the Father Almighty, either. You find out, in the end, that Ungit... Well, I... I'm going to have to spoil your enjoyment of the plot by just explaining it to you. Ungit is Oriuel herself. Ungit is all of us. Ungit is sin. Ungit is Adam. Ungit is the old man. Ungit is a mirror to, to ourselves. And the ultimate answer to the question, why must holy places be dark places, is Ungit. Because when you look into a mirror, you expect to see light and to see yourself better. But suppose you yourself are that mirror and you look into that mirror and you see darkness. Why would you see darkness? You project your own darkness onto the mirror. The key line in the book comes at the end. Or you all keeps asking, why can't we see the gods face to face? The gods, of course, they're, they're polytheists. That's not the main point of the book. Whether there's one god or many, it's not quantity. Obviously, for Christian, there's one God, but you can't expect pagans to know that. But that's not, the, that's not the point. She asks, why can't we see the gods face to face? She finally realizes that the gods cannot meet us face to face till we have faces. And like Oriwell, we hide our face, we mask our face because we're afraid of the light. And that creates the shadow. Augustine has this wonderful image. God is like the sun, and when you run away from him, you run into your own shadow that you cause by running away from him. But it takes a lifetime to see that sometime. Well, here's the priest's description of the great offering. And Lewis has, as I said yesterday, this concept of paganism that believes that there are profound truths in it, but also profound errors mixed together. Both are called the brute's supper. So the god is also called the brute. 
They're terrified of the God. The God is one that devours. And when the brute is unget, it lies with the man. And when it is her son, it lies with the woman. Either way, there is a devouring. Many different things are said, many sacred stories, many great mysteries. Some say the loving and the devouring are all the same thing. For in the sacred language, we say that a man who lies with a woman who lies with a man devours the man. The fox hears this and says to the king who's being advised to, to do this, Master, do you not see the priest is talking nonsense? A shadow is an animal, which is also a goddess, which is also a god, and loving is the same as eating. A child of six could talk more sense. And a moment ago, the victim of this abominable sacrifice was to be the accursed, the wickedest person in the whole land, offered as a punishment for the plague. Now it is to be the best person in the whole land, the perfect victim, married to the god as a reward. Ask him which one he means. It can't be both. Logically, it can't. It's an either-or. And yet there's something in the mystery that transcends that. The priest replies, We are hearing much Greek wisdom this morning, king, and I have heard most of it before. I did not need this slave to teach it to me. It is very subtle. But it does nothing. It does not bring rain or grow corn. The holy sacrifice does both. It does not even give them boldness to die. That Greek there is your slave because in some battle he thought it more reasonable to throw down his arms and let them bind his hands and lead him away and sell him into slavery rather than to take a spear thrust in his heart. Much less does their philosophy give them understanding of the holy things. They demand to see such things clearly as if the gods were nothing more than letters written in a book. I, king, have dealt with the gods for three generations of men, and I know that they dazzle our eyes and flow in and out of one another like eddies on a river, and nothing that is said simply can be said truly about them. Holy places are dark places. It is life and strength, not knowledge and words, that we get in them. Holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. Lewis himself was very sympathetic to both the priest and the fox. They're the two halves of his own mind and of every potential human mind. So the more deeply you sympathize with all the characters, the more deeply you care about this book and the more you see yourself. It's really two books. The first and longest book is a book Oriol herself writes in her own hands as a complaint against the gods. Like Job, she says, I hope that there is a just judge above me and the gods so that we can go to court together. I'd win. My case is more just than, than the gods. They've persecuted me without cause. So this is an, an apology for herself, written by Oriol, against the gods. Then the second book is a book that she has to read in heaven. And it's the real version of her apology. Much shorter and much less complimentary and with no hiding. And she sees all the darkness of her heart revealed. But here's the end of the first book. Now all you who read, judge between me and the gods. They gave me nothing beautiful in this world to love except Psyche. And then they took her from me. But that was not enough. Then they brought me to her at the holy place 
where it hung on my word whether she should continue in bliss or be cast out into misery. They would not tell me whether she was really the bride of a god or insane or a brute's or a villain's victim. They would give me no clear sign, though I begged them for it. I had to guess, and because I guessed wrong, they punished me. What's, what's worse, punished me through her suffering. I say the gods deal very unrightly with us, for they will never go away and leave us to live out our own short days to ourselves, which would be best of all, nor will they show themselves openly and tell us what they would have us to do, for that too would be endurable. But they hint and hover. They draw near to us in dreams and oracles or in a waking vision that vanishes as soon as it is seen. And then they are dead silent when we question them. But they glide back and whisper words we cannot understand when we most wish to be free of them. They show to one what they hide from another. What is this but cat and mouse play? Blind man's buff, mere jugglery. Why must holy places be dark places? I say that, therefore, there is no toad, scorpion, or serpent so noxious to man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a bird or a tree. But will not all the world know then that this is because they have no answer? The Christian reading this book is profoundly troubled because it looks like Lewis is taking the part of Oriwell against the gods. And even though these are only pagan gods, you know that there's enough hints of truth in them and there's enough similarities to the real god that this very sympathetic character, Oriwell, is worse than an atheist. She doesn't just not believe in the gods, she hates them. She's very much like Ivan Karamazov philosophically the central character of this great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, the most sympathetic atheist in human literature. I advise people, if your faith is weak, don't read the greatest Christian novel ever written because you'll fall in love with Ivan. He is an utterly righteous, utterly honest atheist. He has the world's best motives for atheism. And his atheism is not simply a skepticism. It's not just a scientific atheism. It's rebellion. He hates the justice by which God rules the world the justice that allows the torture of innocent children. But you can't really answer any problem unless you face it honestly and go into it totally and deeply. It's significant that Dostoevsky was a deep and profound Christian. He creates the world's most sympathetic atheist character. That's similar to an experiment I do in my classes often when we have a course in philosophy of religion and the question of the existence of God comes up. I ask the class, how many of you think you can prove that God exists? How many of you are either skeptics or unbelievers? And it's always about half and half or one-third and two-thirds. So I say, okay, all of you who think you can prove God's existence, get over here. All of you who think you can't, either because you're skeptics or you don't believe, get over here. And now we're going to have a debate. And they separate and only then do I tell them now all of you who think you can prove the existence of God argue that you can't because there is no God you're the atheists and now you who don't believe you'll be the theists you give them their best arguments he said why did you do that that's not fair oh yes it is if you don't understand the other person's point of view how do you have a right to criticize it okay so they try I've done this three or four times the result is always exactly the same I'll bet you can't guess what the result is 
the theists who are pretending to be atheists win the argument. The atheist arguments are always stronger. The fake atheists' arguments are stronger than the fake theists' arguments. The atheists who are pretending to argue for God give ridiculously weak arguments for believing. But the theists who are pretending to be atheists give better arguments for atheism than the atheists could give. And then we have another debate. How come that happened? So the atheists who are pretending to be theists say, that's because you made us argue for this ridiculously weak position, like Santa Claus. And the theists who are pretending to be atheists said, no, we've seen both sides. They've seen neither. And then we argue that. Well, you know which it is. Well, you get something like that in this book. Oriol is something like Ivan Karamazov. And just as with Ivan, there's hope at the end. It's ambiguous, but clearly both characters emerge into the light. But it's extremely hard. All right, that's one problem. Second one. Why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? The old problem of pain. The main rational objection to faith. We've seen that so thoroughly in the problem of pain that to extract elements of the book we've already read yesterday from this one would be superfluous. So even though that's crucial to the book, uh, let me pass it by into the other three questions because the questions get deeper and deeper. Faith versus reason, that's kind of abstract. Why is there a conflict? Well, the conflict centers on evil and suffering. Why would a good God allow evil? Why would a just God allow undeserved suffering? That's much harder than just the abstract faith and reason. It's easy to say, well, faith and reason can't contradict because God invented both and he doesn't contradict himself. So as long as you use your mind rightly and as long as you use your faith rightly, you know, there will be no contradictions. Well, sure, in the abstract, that's easy. But then in the concrete, this particular problem, why do we suffer? We don't get nearly that kind of light on that particular problem, so that's deeper. Now let's go deeper still. The problem behind the problem. Why don't we know why? Read the book of Job, all-time classic about the problem of evil. God answers Job's question. The three friends don't answer it. Job doesn't answer it. God shows up and finally gives Job his answer. Those are the words. Then the Lord showed up from the whirlwind, from the storm, from the mystery, emerged from the darkness, showed his face to Job, and gave Job his answer. And what is the answer? A question. God's a rabbi. He answers a question with another question. He says to Job, who are you? Job expects to see God's face. God instead shines light on Job's own face. Who were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I planned this? When the morning stars sang together? Were you there? That reminds me of a wonderful saying by a rabbi, my friend, Father Benedict Rochelle, the world's greatest psychologist, uh, was at a, a funeral in the Lower East Side in New York. Uh, he knew Herman, who was an 
Orthodox Jewish gentleman who had just died. And, uh, and his wife, uh, Mabel Tanenzoff, was, was mourning. And they had a, something like a wake, I don't know what the Jewish people call a wake, in, in the home after the funeral. And the rabbi was there. And he was a kind of a, a liberal rabbi. And uh, Mabel Tanenzoff was, was talking to the rabbi, and Father Groeschel was simply listening to it. And uh, Mabel said, uh, Rabbi, I take comfort in, uh, in the fact that I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that, that Herman is in God's presence, and someday I will see him again. The rabbi says, well, I'm very happy that you have that faith, Mabel. Uh, I myself do not. I am a skeptic. I am a man of science. I don't believe in miracles or the afterlife. Uh, all we have is memories. What? You don't believe? No. Well, well, if you don't believe in miracles, then then what happened back there when Moses got Egypt and and the crossing of the Red Sea and and the plagues and all of that? Our uh, our people wouldn't exist but for miracles. The rabbi said, "Well, I think it happened, but I don't think it happened by miracles." Well, she said, how did it happen? Explain it to me. You're a man of science. And the rabbi said, well, sure, I'll explain it to you. For instance, take the biggest miracle, the crossing of the Red Sea. It looks like you can't part the ocean unless God does a miracle. But if you notice carefully, uh, that part of the world uh, is very muddy and very windy. Uh, You also notice that the Egyptians were very rich and the Jews were very poor. So you got half a million Jews uh, on the middle of the uh, at the edge of the marshes. And uh, there's a wind all night, and it sort of dries it up. And the Jews are poor, so they don't have armor or gold, so they can walk across the marshes and not get stuck in the mud. And when the Egyptians see this happening, they send their whole army with all these heavy chariots, uh, and they get halfway across the marshes, and the tide turns, as it does every night, nothing miraculous about that. And the Egyptians are so foolish that they hate the Jews so much that they keep pursuing them, and gradually more water comes in, and they try to get the chariots unstuck, and they can't do it, and this gives time for the Jews to escape. He gave a perfectly rational explanation. And Father Groeschel says, I saw Mrs. Tanenzoff sitting there in amazement. She was not an educated lady. She had never heard this before. She'd never heard anybody explain it before. And he was afraid that she was going to lose her faith because of this. He was going to open his mouth, but he decided wisely to shut it up. Because after the rabbi finished, Mrs. Tanenzoff reduced him to ashes with one simple statement. Oh, you were there. (laughs) That's what happens at the end of the book of Job. God says, oh, when, when I figured out the plan for human life, when I wrote the story of your life before you were ever born, you were there advising me, right? The solution to why we don't know why we suffer is who we are. We have this inherent tendency to play God. Oh, on our conscious level, we repudiate that. That's pride and arrogance and idolatry, of course. But the unconscious, it's much harder to redeem the unconscious than the conscious. And we're really, really stupid the deeper we go. So what God says to Job ultimately is, Here's, here's my solution to why good people suffer. Hush, my child, you couldn't possibly understand.
Oriwa, however, demands to understand and demands to put the god to the test and demands that Psyche bring this light into the god's chamber and will blackmail her to death if she doesn't do it. The meeting where she persuades Psyche to disobey her divine husband and bring the light into the chamber, which is obviously very similar to Satan's temptation to Eve to eat the apple and see what happens. Satan, by the way, is the inventor of the world's oldest profession, advertising. See this apple? You need this apple. Price one soul. You can afford it. Psyche says to Oriwell, not even I have seen him yet. He comes to me only in the holy darkness. He says, I cannot yet see his face or even know his name. I am forbidden to bring light into his chamber, into our chamber. Then she looked up and as our eyes met for a moment, I saw in hers unspeakable joy. I shouted loud and stern, never say these terrible things again. You see the jealousy. At one point, Oriwell almost sees the palace. Just for a moment. And then the vision vanishes. She has just enough evidence. Pascal says, God gives us just enough light so that those who really want to find him can but not so much light that those who don't really want to find him have to. So that what decides your salvation is not how smart you are, but your heart, your love. Lovers will see, others won't. That's what happens here. She sees the palace and she doesn't want to believe in it. Because it means that she is no longer Psyche's most important person. She is no longer God to Psyche. It vanishes after a second, and she writes in her indictment, Now, you who read, give judgment. That moment when I saw, or thought I saw, the palace. Does that tell against the gods, or against me? If they answered, would they make that part of their defense? Would they say it is a sign, a hint, beckoning me to believe? I will not grant them that. What use is a sign, which is itself only another riddle? If the gods had an honest intention to guide us, why is their guidance not plain? Psyche could speak plain when she was three. Have the gods not yet come so far? That sounds very strong and reasonable argument. But behind this reasonable argument is a human motive of jealousy and pride, which she can't see. If she saw it, she'd hate it. And eventually she does see it. Towards the end of the book, she sees the harm that she has done to others without intending to. She sees her self-righteousness and wants to escape it. And then comes maybe the central problem of the book. How? How can you escape your own inner unget? That's also the problem of the brothers Karamazov. The word Karamazov means black smear. Literally, symbol for sin. But everybody, even the good brother Alyosha, is a Karamazov. Even the saints are Adam. Nobody is born into Christ. We're born into Adam. 
So everybody has to get rid of ungut. But to do that, you have to see your ungut first. When this happens, when she's, she is honest, she finally admits it. And then she says, okay, I've, I've got to do something about this. How can I? And let's see if I can find that passage. I saw my face. I was the black stone. I was ungut. The vision was true. What did it mean? To say that I was ungut meant that I was as ugly in soul as she. Selfish, greedy, gorged with blood. But if I practiced true philosophy as the fox meant it, that would change my ugly soul into a fair one. And this, if the gods helped me, I would do. I would set about it at once. The gods helping me. But would they help? Nevertheless, I must begin. But it seemed to me that they would not help. For I set out boldly each morning to be just and calm and wise in all my thoughts and acts. But before they had finished dressing me, I would find that I was back, and knew not how long I had been back, in the same old rage, resentment, gnawing fantasy, or sullen bitterness. I could not hold out against Ungit for half an hour. And then a horrible memory crept into my mind of those days when I had tried to mend the ugliness of my body with new cosmetic devices. I had a cold fear that I was at the same work again. I could not mend my soul any more than I could mend my face. Unless the gods would help. But why did they not help? Then a terrible thought, sheer and huge as a cliff, towered up before my mind, infinitely likely to be true. No man will love you, though you give your life for him, unless you have a pretty face. So might it not be, the gods will not love you, however you try to please them, and whatever you suffer, unless you have beauty of soul. Here's, the, in a sense, the fundamental problem of human life. You've got to be perfect, you can't be perfect. You've got to be just, you can't be just. You've got to please God, you can't please God. This is why those people who read the Sermon on the Mount with a smile and say how enlightened Jesus is, I think, are fools. When I read the Ten Commandments, I'm only a little terrified. I mean, 300 is a major league batting average, and I think I've never stolen anything, killed anybody, or committed adultery. For the other seven, forget it, down the drain. But, you know, I can, I can say, hey God, I'm pretty good. And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, if you've looked on a woman with lust, you're an adulterer. Uh-oh. If you've hated your, 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 your enemy, you're a murderer. Uh-oh, I'm down to zero. Terrifying. That's the x-ray. That's not the operation. That's law. That's not grace. This book is, is really a book about the triumph of grace. But the problem has to be seen as almost insolvable before you can really be grateful for, for grace. It's not just like a plumber coming in and fixing your sink. Maybe you could do it yourself, but bring in the plumber. Oh no. It's a new birth. I love that passage where Jesus comes on this man by the pool of Siloam. Once a year, an angel touches the water of the pool, and the first man who gets into the water is healed of whatever disease he has. Well, this guy's a cripple. He's been a cripple from birth. And he's waiting for the water to to move so he can be the first to get into the water but he can't do it because he's a cripple catch 22 
So Jesus comes on him and says, what's the problem? He says, well, I've, I've, I've got to, see, I'm a cripple. That's the problem. But here's the healing water. Well, why can't you get into the healing water? Because I'm a cripple. That's us. So the water's got to come to us. And that's what Jesus does. He says, take up your bed and walk. And he does it. And in a very different way, that's what happens here. I said the first problem was faith and reason. The second problem was the hardest problem about faith and reason, reconciling God's goodness with our suffering. The third problem was the problem behind the problem. Why does God hide? Why can't we see him? Why can't we see God face to face? And the answer is because we don't yet have faces. Then the fourth problem is the problem behind the problem behind the problem. Why don't we yet have a face? And the answer is because we're two-faced. Romans 7, I love that. Paul says, I don't understand myself. I'm a great mystery to myself. The evil that I hate, that's what I do. The good that I love, that's what I don't do. So there must be two eyes in me. If I sin, but I hate sin, then I'm not sin. I'm something else. And yet, that's my sin. I'm responsible for it. What kind of spiritual schizophrenia? And those two eyes come from two hearts. That is, the two minds, uh, two faces, uh, come from two desires. One is to, uh, to stand in the light, and the other is to hide. The gods are veiled because we veil ourselves. She takes a lifetime to see that. Well, then, finally, how do you get out of it? What, what can be done? Since this is a realistic pagan novel, you don't get a clear answer to that, but you get beautiful hints. And in the pagan story of Cupid and Psyche, or Eros and Psyche, uh, there's a, a famous story, some of you know it if you've studied Greek mythology, of the rams of the gods. Uh, Psyche's task, after she betrays her husband, because Oriol blackmails her, is that she can be reconciled to him only if she goes through the world into the underworld and performs a number of tasks. And one of them is to gather gold from the fleece of the rams of the gods. Now, no human being can do that. Psyche's only a human being. Psyche means human soul. Uh, so it looks like there's no, there's no hope. But right after Oriol articulates this deep problem, how, how can I lift myself up by my own bootstraps? How can I become pleasing to the gods without the gods' help? But why would the gods help me unless I'm pleasing to them? So I'm catch-22. I'm the man by the pool. Right after she formulates that problem, she has this dream, and the dream is the solution. I found myself standing on the bank of a bright and great river. On the farther bank, I saw a flock of sheep. I considered them more closely, and I saw they were all rams, tall as horses, with mighty horns, and their fleeces had such bright gold that I could not look steadily at them. The air of that country was sweet as music. Those are the rams of the gods, I thought. If I can steal but one golden flock off their sides, I shall have beauty. Beauty. 
I walked forward over that holy turf with a hopeful heart. But then all the golden rams came at me. They drew closer to one another as their onrush brought them closer to me, till it was a solid wall of living gold, and with terrible force their curled horns struck me and knocked me flat, and their hoofs trampled me. Now, this, this is a vision sent to Oriuel, uh, and therefore there's some divine wisdom in it, and even though she's a polytheist and there are many gods and therefore many rams, this is God. This is an imperfect symbol of the one true God, perfect, holy, full of light. And this is what God does to, to our soul. Knocked me flat, their hoofs trampled me. They were not doing it in anger. They rushed over me in their love and joy. I understood it well. They butted me and trampled me because their gladness led them on. The divine nature wounds us and perhaps destroys us merely by being what it is. We call it the wrath of the gods, as if the great waterfall were angry with every fly it sweeps down in its green thunder. Yet they did not kill me. When they had gone over me, I lived and knew myself and presently could stand on my feet. Then I saw there was another mortal woman with me in the field. She did not seem to see me. She was walking slowly, carefully, along the hedge which bordered that grassland, scanning it like a gleaner, picking something out of it. What was it? Then I saw bright gold hung in flecks upon the thorns of the bushes. The rams had left some of their golden wool on them as they raced past. This she was gleaning, handful after handful, a rich harvest. This is Psyche, of course. What I had sought in vain by meeting the joyous and terrible brutes with my own power, she took at her leisure. She won without effort what utmost effort could not win for me. Now, the gold comes on the thorns. Thorns are a symbol of suffering. This is the deepest answer to why we must suffer. We must suffer the onrush of divine grace. In our present condition, that has to be suffering. After she has these visions, she gets her heart's desire. She gets to accuse the gods in a heavenly court. And she gets to read her book against them. But her book turns out to be a shabby little book. And here's the essence of her complaint. She says to the gods, I know what you will say in your defense. You will say that the real gods are not at all like Ungut. And I was once shown the house of a real god, Psyche's palace. And that I ought to know that. You fools, I do know it. As if that would heal my wounds. I could have endured it if you were ugly like Ungut. You know well that I never really began to hate you until Psyche began talking of her palace and her lover and her husband. You lied to me. You said a brute would devour her. Well, why didn't it? I would have wept for her and buried what was left and built her a tomb and lived. But to steal her love from me. Can it be that you gods really don't understand? Do you think we mortals will find you easier to bear if you're beautiful? I tell you, if that's true, we'll find you a thousand times worse. 
For then, I know what beauty does, you'll lure and entice. You'll leave us nothing. Those we love best, whoever's most worth loving, those are the very ones you'll pick out. I can see it happening age after age, growing worse and worse the more you reveal your beauty. The son turning his back on the mother and the bride on her groom, stolen away by this everlasting calling of the gods, taken where we can't follow. It would be better for us if you were foul. We'd rather you drank their blood than stole their hearts. We'd rather they were ours and dead than yours and made immortal. To steal her love from me, to make her see things I couldn't see. How could I want to know that? The girl was mine. Mine, I tell you. Do you not understand that word? There's no room for us and you in the same world. We want to be on our own. I was my own, and Psyche was mine. Did you remember whose the girl was? She was mine. You do not know what that word means. And she reads this over and over until the God mercilessly, mercifully interrupts her. Says, are you answered now? And she says, yes. There's a mystic, I think it's a Russian Orthodox mystic, who says, when you go to the judgment day and look on the throne, you will see yourself judging you. I think that means you will see that the judgment is not external. You will not be able to disagree with it. Now she understands. She says, the complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. Lightly do men talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox would say, child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean. That's the whole art and joy of words. Now that's Socrates. That's C.S. Lewis. He has a wonderful, clear style. And here's C.S. Lewis criticizing C.S. Lewis. What a glib saying that is. Do you really want to know exactly what you mean? Or you will found out what you meant. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? The priest at least knew that there must be sacrifices. The Greek philosopher didn't. Well, she meets the fox in heaven, and she says, Oh, grandfather, I've done all this terrible stuff, and is it true? And, and he says, Oh, my child, it is. I could almost be glad. It gives me something to forgive. But I'm not your judge. We must go to your true judges now. The gods have been accused by you. Now is their turn. So Oriol says, I cannot hope for mercy. And he says, infinite hopes may be yours, but be sure that whatever else you get, you will not get justice. Are the gods not just, grandfather? Oh no, child, what would become of us if they were? Great line. She finds out that Psyche has completed her tasks and is in heaven, and she is there too. And there was a kind of holy exchange 
she completed her tasks not in anguish but in joy. And she asks the fox, whom she calls grandfather, why she was happy. And he says, it is because another bore much of her anguish. And Psyche says, was it really I? And the fox says, you bore her anguish, but she achieved your tasks. Would you rather have had justice? That's a very mysterious theological idea. Lewis learned it from Charles Williams and from some of the mystics. Of course, Christ is the only mediator, but we participate in this. Therefore, we do for each other something like what he does for us. We participate in this thing that's much more than justice. My life for yours. The way of exchange, he calls it. And then there's a beautiful mystical vision at the end, which I won't even bother to read. And here's the last paragraph. She ends her book when finally uh, the divine voice tells her who she is. And she finds out, you are also Psyche. That is, she now has acquired a, a pure soul. She has acquired her identity. I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. Once she meets the God, she speaks in the singular, not the plural. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. And that's the end of the book of Job. I used to dislike the book of Job for a number of reasons. I shared one of them with you yesterday. Another one was I didn't understand why Job was satisfied. I thought this was a literary fault. It was too easy. The questions were great. Job has the greatest questions in the world. And God shows up and gives Job his answer. And okay, he puts Job in his place. But then he doesn't add anything to it. He doesn't explain a single thing to Job. Now, some people are simple and innocent and good and faith is natural to them and they don't need answers. But Job's not like that. Job's from Missouri. He's got to know. He's, he's like Oriol or Ivan Karamazov. What I didn't realize was that the most important verse in the book of Job is after God shows up, Job responds, uh, now I know who you are and now I know who I am. I'm the man with empty-headed words. I'm the one who said foolish things like, I'll ask the questions here and you give me the answers. It's the other way around. And then comes chapter 42, verse 4, I think. I had known you with the hearing of the ear. Now I see you with my own eye. And I fall down in dust and ashes. Thomas Aquinas who I think is the greatest theologian who ever lived, uh, shortly before his death, according to sworn testimony at his canonization hearings by his friend and confessor, Brother Reginald, uh, was in the chapel alone in the middle of the night, prone on the floor. He had just finished uh, an important part of the Summa Theologica. 
which begins with reason and ends with faith, and uh, the final treatise is about Christ. They just finished it. And Brother Reginald saw him lying prone on the floor and swore that a voice came from the crucifix. And it said, My son Thomas, you have written well of me. What will you have as a reward? And he says, Thomas answered only three words. Only yourself, Lord. Perfect. Job was as wise as Thomas. And this book teaches us to be similarly wise. All right, that's a sample. Questions about the book or the issues or anything else? Is the message of the book then that that Jesus himself is the answer? Because when we see him, all our questions go away. Exactly. I mean, this, not to be rude, but is that like yep. what they said about the Romans? They make a desert and call it peace. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Yep. I'm not arguing. I'm yep. just... Yep. That seems... Suppose God had given Job words. Suppose God had written a book. Hey, Job, I wrote this book myself. It's the best book in the world. It explains every single question you have. It's the answer to the problem of evil. Job would say, thanks, God. Let me read the book. He reads it. Boy, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But remember, Job's a philosopher. Job wants to know. So, oh, that's a good argument, Lord. But your first premise, I'd like a proof of that. And uh, this thing that you tell me to do, yeah, that's good, but what's going to happen next? So he'd come back to God the next day and said, God, that's a great book. Now, could you please explain chapter 1? And could you please explain what I'm supposed to do about chapter 2 and what it's going to come to? And suppose God answers him again. Then the next day, Job would say, you know, God, i got some questions about that. And it would go on and on and on forever. And that's not joy. That's the road to joy, but it's not joy. At some point, you've got to just shut up and smile. Do you think this is why Jesus told the apostles, it's better for you if I go away? Yep. Yep. You can see him. You can't see the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God himself living in your soul with maximum intimacy. I mean, even Jesus, although he's maximally intimate in another way, is in one way removed from us by 2,000 years of time and 4,000 miles of space and the fact that he's somebody else. He's your brother. He's not you. And God's your father, not you. But the Holy Spirit's you. He's inside you. He haunts you. You're his house. If you, if you focus on God the Father only, you tend towards, this is wrong, don't have to get there, but the, the danger is deism. He's so transcendent and perfect and remote that the distance is infinite. If you focus on the Holy Spirit only, the danger is pantheism. He's so intimate. He's so much you that he's almost you. So to start with Christ is to get both. Both the distance and the intimacy because he's the son of the father and he's the center of the spirit. Um, one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to Lewis is I feel like he was writing 50 to 60 years ahead of his time as a, as a fully modern, fully redeemed pagan. Uh, as my experience of the culture within the last 15 years or so has been that we've moved past rational modernism into a, a modern paganism. And my question is, how does the church help the world now move past the good dreams to which they've regressed into the reality of Christ? 
because we're still clothed so much in refuting modernist rationalism, and that's still out there. But how do we as, as the church undergo this shift of focus? Very good question, and Lewis's answer, you might not like it, would be this. The only way to be relevant to your time is to be irrelevant to it. You start with the eternities. You don't start with the times. So you don't start by saying, all right, here's one problem, modernism. Here's the other problem, postmodernism. Okay, what's the solution that, that transcends both of them? Ah, Christianity, here it is. No, you start out with the truth, with the light, and then you look at the shadows and see what the light... It's like the golden key. We've got the key first, and then you apply it to the doors. Our search is not for the key. We've got the key. The key has found us. Our search is for the doors. That's second. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about the categories. Lewis described himself in his autobiography as irrelevant to his time because he is a converted pagan living among apostate Puritans. Um, forgive me if I get this wrong because I've only read Till We Have Faces once and it was a while ago. Uh, there's a scene where Oriel and Psyche are by the stream and Psyche is serving Oriel wine from her palace and trying to show her various things and show her the palace and Oriel just doesn't see it. Um, and there's also a scene in The Last Battle um, in the stable where um, the dwarves are in there and they think they're in an old stable and Aslan goes in there and serves them wine and wonderful food and they think they're eating straw and donkey water or something and they don't see it um, Jesus says those that have ears to hear let them hear um, and um, Elijah was it Elijah tried to get his his sidekick to see and he got he asked the Lord to open his eyes and he did I, I think these are all very similar things can you kind of comment on that Yes, thank you for that very profound question. In order to tell you something you didn't already know, I'm going to have to say something that some of you will certainly misinterpret. You will call me a Buddhist or a pantheist. Thomas Traherne says, The world is a palace of infinite beauty, but we don't see it. Lewis suggests... I think in the great divorce that when we get to heaven well let's start with the other one those that go to hell will say will look back on their life on earth and say I was always in hell and they will speak truly those who go to heaven will look back on their life on earth they will say I was always in heaven I just did what does that mean does it mean that heaven is no better than earth no it means that this whole Universe, 18 billion light years wide and 18 billion years long so far, and it's still young. This whole universe is nothing but a tiny little womb. And when you die, you pop out of the womb and you're in heaven. And then what happens to your attitude towards your life on earth? Well, what happens when you're born? You get a different mode of consciousness. Before you were born, your mother's womb was everything that there was. 
You might have believed that there was life after birth, or maybe not. Maybe you argued about it. You philosophized about it. What's it going to be like? Bigger and better wombs, maybe? And then you're born. And it's a wonder. How could you possibly have, have figured out the smartest fetus in the world? How could you possibly have figured out what, what you were going to look like? If you saw at the age of, of eight months in the womb a picture of yourself now, you'd say, who's that? That must be a goddess. That's not me. Lewis says in, in, in The Weight of Glory, if we saw our Christian neighbor as he or she is going to be in eternity, we would either be strongly tempted to fall down at his feet and worship him, or else turn away screaming as the most horrible nightmare we ever had. And all day long we're helping one another to one of those two destinations. Now, if that's true, if this world is just a womb, and the womb is part of the world. You didn't know that when you were in the womb. But now that you're outside of it, you say, oh, the womb isn't far. The womb is right here in the, in the world. It's part of the world. So I think in heaven, maybe we'll look back on our life on earth and say, you know, I was always in heaven. I just didn't have the eyes to see it. Again, to quote some Russian Orthodox mystic. I think this is fairly common. I've seen it in, in a number of writers. Uh, heaven and hell, they say, now, this is only a theory. Don't pin me down on it. Heaven and hell are really the same place. Except that those in hell find it torture and those in heaven find it bliss. Because the place is God and the place is light and the place is righteousness. And that tortures the people in hell. And that's why God can't do anything about hell. Because God shines the light of truth and righteousness and pure love. He can't stop doing that. That's what he is. Those in hell are in hell because they hate it. They can't endure it. And those in heaven, they're blissed and blessed by it. Imagine two people at an opera. For one, it's heaven. For the other, it's hell. Then they go to a rock concert. It's vice versa. <laughs> There's something to that. Okay, but that's interesting speculation. What does it have to do with my life right now? Well, a whole lot. If that's right, or if even that's something like right, or if even that's something like a, a, a thin little version of what's right, then it transforms your attitude towards everything right here. God's not far away. He's right here. And heaven isn't far away from earth. Earth is its seed. And he's holding us by the hand, even though we don't see him. And, and faith sees him. And he's really present. It, it, it changes everything. It, it, just as it changed the most terrible thing that ever happened. The crucifixion of Christ. Those scars, they're still on his body when he appeared in the resurrection. He said to Tom, Thomas, uh, touch my wounds. They're wounds of glory. They're beautiful. So if we had those eyes, we'd see even the wounds here as beautiful. Now, that's very hard to do. And maybe we can't do that. But we can at least know that it's true, even though we don't see it or feel it. And we can at least try to see it. And we can know we don't see it. The reason why we don't see it is not because it's not there. The reason we don't see it is that we're like, or you will. We're veiling ourselves. God's not hiding from us. We're hiding from him. This is not original. This is Lewis. Yeah. Oruel 
thought that Psyche was insane because she saw Psyche standing there in rags before a grove of trees completely undeveloped. From Psyche's point of view, she was in bliss. She was clothed in wonderful garments, served by servants, living in a palace. It seems to me this speaks to us of our situation. There are people, few enough, who are in bliss now with us and who are challenged on a daily basis by others saying, you're out of your mind. Stop that nonsense and yep. come be realistic with me. Yep. If, if any of us ever achieve that bliss, are we required to give it up to go with those who challenge us? Or do we spurn them and try to maintain our life in the palace? Do you know the answer to that question? St. Francis of Assisi says to his followers, if God grants you the beatific vision and you are wrapped in mystic ecstasy and there is not the slightest difference between earth and heaven and if at that point some poor stranger knocks on your door angrily demanding that you open the door to him if you do not reject the beatific vision and open the door to the stranger you will be rejecting the beatific vision because that's that's the key to bliss doing God's will it's not just something you see it's something you do your heart leads your head you'll see it if you do it the happiest people I have ever met in my life, bar none, is Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity. They have a, a, a house in Roxbury in Boston, which is the, the worst slum in Boston. And all they do is live there in poverty, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, pray for three hours, and then go out in the streets and try to help people mend their broken lives. And they deal with just tragic situations, tragic people all the time. They are radiantly happy. Why? They see. They see that Jesus is just as really there as he was on the streets of Jerusalem. Why do they see it? Because they love him so. Their hearts just open their eyes to see. It's incredibly simple. They're very, very simple people. It's hard for clever people to see that because we create so many shadows to run away in. We've all got this motive to run away. But if we're simple, it's hard to run away. That's why I like to say the stupidest ideas in the world, you have to have a PhD to believe them. 